Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, my name is Carl and I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach and I'm really excited to be back with you guys again this year. We're kicking off this year with a new series called Worldview that I'm praying is going to bless you and build you up as we every single week seek to dissect seven different worldviews. About a month ago, I went to a wedding and I had a really incredible time with this guy who... um, like confessed that he was an atheist and we spent about an hour, the most beautiful time, um, debating all different kinds of things. Um, We debated God and we debated um, uh, the Bible, we debated uh, hell, we debated archaeology. It was really, really a special time, the best time I've ever had at a reception. And um, during that time, I was convicted of a couple of things. The first thing that I was convicted of is that there are many people willing to talk to you about Jesus if you're willing to trust the leading of the Holy Spirit. Many people willing to talk to you about Jesus. At this uh, wedding reception, it's a crowded wedding reception, but I just looked across the way and I saw this couple um, standing over there and um, I'd been in their place before. They, They had the shoes on, the kind of shoes of like, you knew that they knew no one else. And so they had like, they'd finished the conversation that they could have with each other and they had nothing left to say. And so I was standing about 10 metres away deciding whether I was going to let them sweat it out or not. And I decided that the Holy Spirit had spoken to me. And so um, led by the Holy Spirit, I moved across the room. And even though I was inconvenienced by it, I was convinced about what could be possible by a people group full of faith who were so willing and so bold to cross the room. I didn't know that there was a whole bunch of people there that night that were hoping that our paths would cross. And the next hour was beautiful, and I thank God for it. And I was powerfully reminded that it, was po- that it is possible for God to even use people like us in the strangest of circumstances if we'd be so humble to let the Holy Spirit lead us. I was convicted of something else. I was also convicted that we should always be prepared Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. Not every heart is hard to the gospel. And I do believe by faith that God is softening hearts all over this city. And I would ask you tonight, do you know why the Christian worldview is such good news? And could you answer someone that very question if it was asked of you? Could you testify to your conviction that Christianity stands firm against every other worldview that this culture has to offer? Well, we have three major goals over the next seven weeks in this series. Three major goals. Goal number one is to show how Christianity is better. I don't want to be secretive about our agenda. I do have a bias. It's not an uninformed bias, but it is a bias. While we're going to look at seven worldviews over the next seven weeks, I don't want you to think that um, each worldview is measured equally, that each worldview has the same historical groundings, that you can just choose your own adventure and whichever worldview you land on, that is going to be a good worldview for you. I do believe that Christianity is better. I do believe that Jesus is better. And we don't apologize for that. Goal number two, to accurately portray seven major worldviews. While it's true that six of the worldviews being presented uh, over the next uh, six weeks, next six, seven weeks, I disagree with, 
and one of them I do agree with, I don't believe that Christians have often have a great understanding of all the other worldviews. And Dr. John Dixon says that one of the best things that you can do when you enter a debate or you enter apologetics is to so represent the other view so well that they would say, yes, that's exactly what I believe. But Christians often fail that test. We often build up these straw men that's largely based out of myth and instead of building things on fact, we build up these straw men so we can easily knock them down and feel better about themselves. But my hope is to so accurately represent the core values of each worldview so if you were to enter a dialogue with someone of an opposing faith, you would be able to enter that conversation informed rather than just battle myths the whole time. Goal number three is to prepare you for mission. In our world, we have 2.3 billion people that would identify as Christian. That means that there are 5 billion people who desperately need the urgency of this mission. And if you were to look through the book of um, the Acts of the Apostles, you would see that they were incredibly wise in how they presented the gospel. They did not change the message of the gospel, but they did change the means of the gospel. When they spoke to Jews, they spoke about the prophecies of the Old Testament. And when they spoke to non-Jews, they spoke about Greek culture. You'd be familiar with Acts 17, verse 28, where um, Paul said, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Christians do well to know the terrain of our mission, so we might know where the gospel and culture frequently converge. So next week we look at Mormonism, or the Church of Latter-day Saints, then Islam, then Catholicism, Buddhism, uh, Judaism, and then finally atheism. But tonight we dissect the Christian worldview. And we need to start off by asking the question, what do we mean by worldview? Well, worldview very simply is a view of the world. It is not a physical view of the world, it's a uh, philosophical view of the world. You might like to define worldview in this way. That worldview is a set of beliefs about fundamental aspects of reality that inform how we interpret and interact with the world around us. At its core, developing a worldview is really answering the question, why is there something rather than nothing? A worldview is like a pair of sunglasses. It's like a pair of sunglasses. You know when you go and buy those sunglasses that are UV protecting and you look at something, you might look at a chair and someone else looks at that chair, but you both see it through that lens and the experience that you're having is completely different. You're both looking at the same thing, but you're looking through a different lens. Now that is like a worldview. The problem with that illustration is that sunglasses are a lens that alter reality. So when you look through that lens, you're not seeing things as they really are, you're seeing them as they are altered. Perhaps a better illustration is to talk about reading glasses, where if you wear the wrong reading glasses, your view is blurred, but with the right reading glasses, you see things with crystal clear clarity. So our goal over this next seven weeks is to pursue an understanding of worldview with crystal clear clarity. It would be incredibly unloving to tell you that you can hold two opposing worldviews at the same time. We're not presenting options for you to choose your own adventure as if all worldviews are created equally. But to be fair to the process, before we dissect any other worldview, let's start by dissecting our own. So if you've got like pieces of paper and you want to take some notes, this would be a great time to get that out. If you want to get out your mobile phone and take notes on there, I just trust that you're not on Facebook or Instagram, but if you are, then just add me. I'd really appreciate some friends. 
But tonight I want to give you four pillars of a Christian worldview. Four pillars of a Christian worldview. And in doing so, answer the question, what makes the Christian worldview such good news? Now, there are a number of things that could be said tonight, but I'm convinced that what is being said tonight is the most important. So here is the first pillar. And this pillar is the basis for all other pillars. Pillar number one, a Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. A Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. If you meet someone on the street who claims to be Christian and the way that they um, make decisions in life, what informs their decisions in life is not the Bible, then they are not holding a Christian worldview. You might be, able to, uh, you might be asking the question, why do Christians trust in the authority of the Bible then? The answer is simply because we have good reason to. Now we could spend a lot of time talking about why there are good reasons to trust in the authority of the Bible. And indeed we have. So if you were to jump online onto our YouTube page, you'll find a whole host of sermons uh, that speak to the authority of the Bible. But tonight I want to speak to just two that have been the most significant for me. I want to give you a subjective reason to trust in the authority of the Bible. And then I want to give you an objective reason to trust in the authority of the Bible. Reason number one, a subjective reason to trust in the authority of the Bible is because it has changed my life and many of the people around me. There is nothing wrong with experience. Nothing wrong with experience, right? Our pastor tells us that there is nothing wrong with experience. The problem is when experience is divorced from truth. The reality is that the Bible has absolutely changed my life and it gives so many people a view of the world that is so consistent that their lives do improve. For example, the Bible doesn't deny the reality of pain like many other worldviews do. It actually teaches us how to rightly grieve in the midst of pain and thrive in its midst. The Bible doesn't tell me that if I look deep down inside me, I will find all the answers for life, like a number of other worldviews do. But it does tell me how I've been designed to live. The Bible doesn't tell me to live a life of seclusion in cult-like isolation like some other worldviews do, but it does teach me how to love my neighbour. I've experienced the Bible shape and change my life in such a way that I do believe that I have the confession of King David in Psalm 4 verse 7 where he says, You have put God more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I've found that it's true that the riches that this world offers don't bring satisfaction and life with Jesus does. Life with Jesus does. But I'll grant you that that is a subjective reason. So let me give you an objective reason. The objective reason that is so pressing on my heart in this season of my life. And it's this. The disciples were nobodies. The disciples were nobodies. How is that a reason to trust in the authority of the Bible? Well, it's because of this. Because 2,000 years ago, 12 men of no great prosperity or position in society proclaimed a message deeply offensive to culture, claimed the ability to be able to perform supernatural miracles, and a number of them circulated their account of the life of Jesus. And this account birthed the largest faith movement the world has ever seen. Now, there are a number of arguments there, so let me just break them down for you. Argument number one, they were of no great prosperity or position. So even in our culture, a politician knows that if what they're saying is true, it may be helpful, but if they get a celebrity to say it, then it is really true. Like what they're saying is true, but it's only really true if Beyonce says it. The problem with the disciples is that they had no prosperity to be able to leverage. 
The disciples were nobody. Most of them were fishermen, a pretty ordinary typ uh, typical trade. Jesus was mocked from, for coming from Nazareth. The disciples had no pre-established influence. Most, uh, probably the most famous of the disciples was uh, Matthew, who was infamous for being a tax collector, hated, not loved by all. 1 Corinthians 1.17 tells us that the Apostle Paul was not a great public speaker. And chapter 10.10 tells us that his physical presence was unimpressive. Perhaps a kind way to say that he was an ugly man. There is hope for preachers all over the world. The disciples had no prosperity or position in culture that they could leverage to get their message out, yet it flourished. Argument number two, the message deeply was deeply offensive to culture. Galatians 5 verse 11 speaks about the offense of the cross. The cross of Christ means that the rich and powerful can't please God by their wealth. And the cross means that you can't earn your way into salvation. It is entirely by grace. But prosperity and position in the ancient Greek culture were the very reason that, thing, that people believed that God was choosing to bless them. The message of Christianity being proclaimed by the disciples was that our riches are in heaven and to serve Jesus will likely mean persecution. To be persecuted by the world in Greek culture meant that the gods were frowning upon you. There was so much, so much to offend in the Christian message that it was almost entirely unpalatable to their audiences. Argument number three, the disciples claimed the ability to perform miracles and their claims were received. In the book of Acts, Luke records the testimony of many eyewitnesses who claim to have seen or experienced the miracles of the disciples. He writes in Acts 5 verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So what's happening is that Luke is recording down the miracles that is happening all amongst the people. He makes this account and then he circulates it in the lifetime of those people. So if a letter is being circulated about you and it was not true, then you would claim that it was false. The people about you, around you would know that it is false and that letter would get nowhere. If the miracles didn't happen, then the letter would have hit the dirt. It would have been falsified, yet the letters flourished. There is this claim made by atheists that extraordinary claims need extraordinary, extraordinary evidence. Friends, the prevalence of the Bible is that extraordinary evidence. It makes no logical sense for the Christian gospel and scriptures to have flourished in the first century. No logical sense apart from the reality of their truthfulness. Now we should then ask, what does this text reveal to us about the Christian worldview? Well, that's pillar number two. So pillar number one, a Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. View. Pillar number two, God is God and I am not. God is God and I am not. Now we know that in the original languages that they didn't have exclamation points and question marks and they couldn't put things in bold and italics and windings to make them make sense, right? They had to use other means to get your attention. So they used repetition. So over large chunks of scripture, you'll see repetition to be able to emphasize a point. So although Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are describing the same account of Jesus' life, they all do it in different ways because they're trying to make a different point. So we see it over large chunks of Scripture. We also see it over in small-scale repetition. So in John 15, for example, um, the writer uses the word love 10 times because he's trying to make a point about love. We also see that there is word repetition in Isaiah 6.3 and Revelation 4.8. God is described as holy, 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 holy meaning set apart, saying that God is incredibly set apart, set apart, set apart. God is so unlike us. 
all through Scripture is this argument that God is set apart. And this different isn't just speaking about uniqueness. God is different and he is greater. God is different and he is greater. In Isaiah 55 verses 8 to 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't just think differently than us. His thoughts are different and they are higher. It is inconsistent in a Christian worldview to say that believers can pick and choose from the Bible when it is most convenient to them. I remember sitting with a young person once who said to me that um, I choose to uh, trust in the Bible when it makes sense to me and then in other seasons of my life, I will trust in what I think about that situation. That is a splintered worldview, view, totally inconsistent with the Christian worldview. The good news of the Christian worldview is that God is on his throne and I am not. That is the good news of the Christian worldview, that God is on his throne and I am not. That's why David writes in Psalm 147, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. In 2 Samuel it says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Or Jeremiah proclaims in Jeremiah 10 verse 7, Who would not fear you, o king, of, o king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. There is none like God. He is different and he is greater. So we've got to ask, why is it good news to know that God is different and greater than us? Well, the reason is this, is that if we were greater than God, we would get everything that our heart wants instead of everything that our heart truly needs. We would get everything that our heart wants rather than what our heart truly needs. Christian worldview acknowledges that our hearts cannot be trusted. And in saying that, I would suggest that that is not that radical claim at all. Let's call it the KFC theory, hey? Let's call it the KFC theory. Let me ask you some questions. Have you ever thought about how bad KFC makes you feel? Have you ever thought about how bad KFC makes you feel as you've driven down Northeast Road? Have you ever thought about how bad KFC makes you feel as you pulled into the driveway of KFC and ordered a large Zinger Burger combo with extra salt? Have you ever eaten a whole Zinger Burger combo and asked yourself, why did I do that? Or maybe you like, you, your, your stomach was just so bloated and you reached into that popcorn to grab a whole other handful of popcorn and stuff into your mouth. Maybe I'm just describing my whole Christmas to New Year's period. Maybe that's just me. Maybe for you, you've known exactly what to say at that moment that was going to cut to the heart of someone and you knew it was going to be painful, but you chose to say it anyway. The Bible does not say that our hearts are beyond saving. The Bible does not say that, but the Bible does say that our hearts cannot be trusted. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In the Bible, receiving the desire of your heart isn't a gift, it's a punishment. In Romans 1, Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. God's greatness and our smallness is not a punishment. It is a gift. Praise God that we serve a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. The amount of times that I've desired something and I've wanted something wrongly, only to know that what God wanted for me was so much better and so much greater. 
But you might say, is it a good thing that God knows me better than I know myself? Well, that leads us to pillar number three. Pillar number one is that a Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. Pillar number two, God is God and I am not. And pillar number three, God is intimate and he loves me. God is intimate and he loves you. Jesus proclaimed in Mark 1.15 that the kingdom of God is near, or the ESV translates it, that the kingdom of God is at hand. The Christian message is that God is not far off and distant, but he is intimately involved in his creation. There is this kind of spirituality called deism that argues that God exists and created the world, but did not involve himself in the world then on. The good news of the Bible is that if you're willing to trust in its authority is that God is not only not distant, but he is a personal God who has created a way for an unholy and imperfect creation to exist with a completely holy and perfect creator. I was at a different wedding recently because it is wedding season. And I was speaking to a bloke who would describe himself as a deist who he believed that God created the world, spun it into motion and just let it be. And his argument was that you, you can't not believe in God. This was his argument, that there's no way that something came from nothing. Uh, but he just believes that he's tried Christianity and it didn't work for him, made no difference, and so he's left it by the wayside. And I do understand the pain in his voice when he exclaims that. But I think that the part of the problem when people don't understand how God works is because they don't actually understand the difference he makes when he draws near. Here are two significant, the most significant differences that God makes when he draws near. Uh, difference number one is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel. The gospel is very simply the good news is that that. We have a God who is a just judge and all of us have fallen short of his perfect standard and we are deserving of a guilty sentence. But rather than receive the punishment of eternal separation from his good presence, God the Father sent God the Son to receive the punishment he did not deserve so we would receive the reward that we do not deserve, which is to enjoy his good presence forever. The gospel is the innocent one proclaimed guilty so the guilty ones might be proclaimed innocent. When the Bible speaks about being made righteous, it talks about dealing with our guilt before God. And in our culture, we do this thing with our language where we have one word and it has multiple meanings, right? And we often say that we feel guilt. And what we really mean is that we feel shame. Where guilt is a legal description. What people don't understand is that when God has come near, he has called a guilty people innocent. There is a legal change. That Christianity isn't primarily a faith of feelings, but it deals with our eternal separation from God. It creates an opportunity for every single person to experience peace with God, a real tangible experience, not through goosebumps on your back, but through the experience of a guilty people deserving of punishment, being called innocent, being called a child of God. Perhaps those that doubt the difference God has made in their lives need to remind themselves of what would be lost if God had not drawn near to his children. Difference number two is through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, people have tried long and hard to be able to describe the person of the Holy Spirit and to describe the Trinity and to describe what this um, divine mystery is in the Godhead, which Christians call the Trinity, that we believe in one God. We are a monotheistic faith. We believe in one God, three persons in one the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And people have tried to use all these different analogies to be able to describe this person of the Holy Spirit and how 
they, how he interacts uh, together in the Trinity. They've used this illustration of, well, God is like um, ice and he is like gas and he is like liquid. But the problem with that analogy is when you push it too far, there is a real problem because water cannot exist as a liquid and as an ice and as a gas at the same time. But our Heavenly Father and Son and Spirit exist eternally as persons, not melding into one another. People have tried to use the um, analogy of a family, that the Trinity is kind of like a family, right? So we have Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in a family. And again, if you push it too far, it breaks down because I'm in a family and I am a father, but I am also a husband. So depending on how you relate to me, my position changes. But the Father is eternally the Father, the Spirit is eternally the Spirit, and the Son is eternally the Son. So there is this divine mystery when it comes to understanding the personal work of the Holy Spirit. But of this you can be sure, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not Gatorade. The Holy Spirit is not a thing like the force from Star Wars. Listen to the way the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8. It says, And when He comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all the things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. He apportions each to, uh, to each one individually as He wills it. The Holy Spirit is not described as a force or an it or as Gatorade. The Holy Spirit is described as a person. Not a person like you or I, but a person who is described as He, who has personality and who has attributes. Many people don't understand how the person of the Holy Spirit works because they're trying to interact with fairy dust. They've written out this wish list at Christmas time and they're trying to take the Holy Spirit and sprinkle the Holy Spirit like fairy dust in their wish list. Not understanding that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit does not uh, live in a pouch on your utility belt. For many people, they're not convinced in the intimate nature of God because they have preconceived ideas of what God does. It is true that the Holy Spirit is described and defined as the comforter in the Bible. But Francis Chan says this. He says, Why would we need to experience the comforter if our lives are already comfortable? Not one person in the New Testament would testify that the Holy Spirit came so that our comfort that we already have would be increased. No, the Holy Spirit is ready and willing to minister to and three all people who might fix their eyes on the glory of God and his mission in the world. Which brings us to our final pillar tonight. Pillar number one is that the Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. Pillar number two, God is God and I am not. Pillar number three, God is intimate and he loves me. And pillar number four, God has a mission for his people. God has a mission for his people. The mission of the church is clear. And I might invite the band to come back up at this point. The mission of the church is clear. It's revealed in Matthew 28, 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all to observe all that I've commanded you. I thank God for his mission in the world. I thank God for his mission in the world. Why? Because in 1996, in my school, a young man convicted of the gospel truth crossed the room with boldness to share the gospel with me. 
I did not come from a Christian family. My friendship group was not Christian. I was not going to stumble and fall over and land on the gospel. I needed someone with boldness and conviction who had a passionate biblical understanding of their worldview to cross the room with such boldness that I might hear about a saviour named Jesus. Some hold to the worldview that as long as you believe what you believe and stay silent, that's fine by me. It's like this experience of going to a bus stop. If there's two people at a bus stop, this is the rule. You sit down by either ends. If a third person comes to the bus stop, this is the rule. You do not sit down, you stand up at one end. Fourth person come, this is the rule. You come and you stand out the other end. And everyone puts on their headphones and everyone stays silent and everything's okay as long, long as no one interacts with each other. The Christian worldview does not accept a position where Christians in this world sit in distant, comfortable silence from those in need of saving. Why? Because of the great hope we have and the great reward. Because of the great hope that we have and the great reward. Uh, at the wedding that I was at, that I mentioned at the start, uh, I walked across the room and uh, introduced myself to this uh, couple and I spoke to them for quite a while. And the first question that they asked me like really hit out the gate. Like it was a, um, they asked me this question where this mutual friend who'd become a Christian in the last year and they asked me this question and I answered it wrongly because my answer was untrue. They asked me the question, did you profit when that person became uh, a Christian? Did you profit? And my answer uh, that I gave them was um, not true because it was wrong. I said, no, I don't profit when someone becomes a Christian. Um, the si the, my salary doesn't increase and my office size doesn't get any bigger. And while it is true that when someone becomes a Christian in the life of this church, that no one's uh, pay wage on staff goes up and no one's uh, office gets any bigger, it is not true that we as Christians don't profit when someone gets saved. Jesus says this in Matthew 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do you know what's included in that treasure? It's your friends and your family and your enemies that you proclaim the gospel to and they believed upon the Lord Jesus. That we would one day be united with them in Christ in heaven. That is the great hope of the Christian worldview. The great reward is that all this stuff that we have, all this stuff that we get so deeply concerned about, the moths will attack it. Generations after us won't care. They'll laugh at our pews. They'll laugh at the clothes that we wear. But in heaven, we'll have this eternal reward, being united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Christian worldview is narrow, but it is eternally significant. Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. The Christian worldview proclaims that God is God and I am not. Proclaims that God is intimate and He loves me. Proclaims that God has a mission for His people. It is true that the claims of the Christian worldview are unapologetically and unashamedly narrow, but they are of eternal significance. So in this series that we're embarking on, you are going to get three options about what you can do with this Christian worldview. You can uh, deny it, you can ignore it, 
or you can humbly embrace it. But I do believe that the person of the Holy Spirit wants to encounter you. That this year might be a year where you would build your worldview on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. This series was not brought before you so that your head might be puffed up. This series was brought before you so you might know that Jesus is better and be equipped for mission. I would love to pray for anyone now who wants to build their foundation on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. In the life of this church, we would just like to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a bit of privacy. I would love to pray for you if uh, maybe that's not the testimony of last year, that you did have a splintered worldview. Now going into 2019, you might have a year where you would build your foundation on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That in your school or your university or your workplace, you would be so bold to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ because it is true in your life that Jesus has radically changed you. If you have a bit of a fear of returning to work tomorrow or university or school this year and would like um, the Holy Spirit to be your source of strength and encouragement and you would like for me to pray for you now, would you just raise your hand so I might know to pray for you? Awesome, awesome. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Once you put your hand up, you can put it back down. Is there anyone else that I might pray for tonight? God, we thank you that you are gracious to your people, that you are intimate and you love us. God, there are many people in this city who desperately need you. And it is true that there are times where we feel so weak and we shrink back and we don't proclaim your gospel and we fear being rejected, we feel being inaccurate, we fear not knowing what other people know. God, we just pray that you would be our source of strength, our source of wisdom. Pray for any person in this room that has a fear about returning to the marketplace of life and engaging with people that have such a, um, an anger towards the church. We just pray that your spirit would minister to them now. Remind them that you're greater. Remind them that you're better. Remind them that you can be relied upon. Remind them of the great work of Jesus Christ, that he is worthy of worship and no persecution. All persecution will pale in comparison to eternity with you in heaven, united as one body. So God, I just want to pray that as we worship now, I pray that your spirit would minister to us. And that it would remind us of your greatness and how worthy you are of worship. God, as we sing, be glorified, be lifted up. And with the person of the Holy Spirit, do ministry here now. So we would be convicted to be on mission, representing you, reaching people, reproducing ourselves for the glory of Christ. Amen. I invite you.